book of Luke, Gospel of Luke, chapter 7. I won't dock Jason any points for knocking over that microphone stand. It is a blessing, though, to, uh, as a dean, to see students not only excelling in terms of their, uh, their studies academically, but also serving in the context of a local body, context of a church. Blessing to see Jason doing that here. Luke chapter 7, and what we're going to look at this morning is a narrative in which Jesus is dealing with doubt. And in this case, what makes the narrative so striking is that the person doubting is a believer. Literary experts would refer to a doubting believer as an oxymoron. Oxymoron is a term that refers to two ideas that are mutually exclusive. They're contradictory. They don't go together. When you speak of a doubting believer, it's almost as if you're speaking of a, an optimistic pessimist or a pessimistic optimist. The ideas just don't fit. And yet, as this passage makes clear, as we'll see, genuine believers do sometimes struggle with doubts. Many years ago, when I was a new Christian, I remember coming across a little volume entitled Mere Christianity. It was an apologetic for the Christian faith written by C.S. Lewis and probably one of the most well-known and well-loved apologetics. Many people have been helped by reading that book. I remember after reading it the first time feeling like Christianity was more certain than gravity. I thought to myself, I'll never doubt. Even my children have been greatly helped by Lewis's work. Many of you probably have read it and been encouraged. However, many people have not read another work that Lewis wrote entitled, A Grief Observed. Lewis wrote that book after the death of his wife, his wife Joy, who died from cancer. And in that book, Lewis, the great apologist of the faith, expressed doubts. He says, in essence, I wasn't doubting that God exists. Rather, he says, in light of what happened to me, in light of the fact that God was not answering my prayers for her healing, I was doubting whether or not I wanted to actually trust in that kind of God. Now, brothers and sisters, I hope we're honest enough to admit that sometimes those kinds of doubts have crossed our minds. To be sure, there are many times we can look back at our Christian experience and we can remember how full of faith we are. Faith in the existence of God, faith in the goodness of God, faith in the Bible, faith in the promises of Scripture. But there have been times where maybe we've struggled with doubts. And oftentimes it's occasioned by some difficult circumstance God brings into our life. Could be a sickness, could be uh, a loved one that 
is resisting the faith and persisting in unbelief, could be the loss of employment, but at one time or another we find ourselves struggling. Do we really believe in the Bible? Do we really believe in the God who is presented in Scripture? And maybe some of you right now would be honest enough to admit that you have or perhaps even are right now struggling with those kinds of doubts. Well, if that's the case, then this passage of Scripture is for you. All Scripture is inspired of God and profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Jesus Christ knows our hearts. He knows everything. He knows sometimes we struggle with doubt, and I believe for that reason, this passage is in our Bibles. And so what I want us to do this morning is I want to look at verses 18 through 22, and I want us to see, first of all, a genuine believer struggling with doubts, and then secondly, a gentle Savior dealing with doubts. And I want us, even if you're here this morning and you say, well, I haven't struggled with any doubts, I want you to try to remember the injunction of Scripture where the Apostle Paul says, let those who think they stand take heed lest they fall. There's no temptation that has taken you but such as is common to man. And yet God is faithful who will with the temptation provide a way of escape. So even if you haven't been struggling with doubts, Take heed to what the Lord is saying here through this word. And perhaps this will be an encouragement and a help when those times of doubt come. So with that in mind, first of all then, let's look at a genuine believer struggling with doubts. Verses 18 through 20. We read there that the disciples of John reported to John all of these things. Now what is it that they're reporting? Well, if you remember the reading that Jacob... Uh, Jason gave to us this morning, you'll remember that Jesus has been performing miracles. In fact, the one highlighted in the immediate uh, part of the narrative is one in which Jesus raises a dead man. And so John's disciples are reporting these things to John, and John, verse 19, calls two of his disciples, and he sends them to the Lord, saying, are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men came to Jesus, they said, they just basically repeated this question from John, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? Now just think about that for a moment. Here we have John the Baptist doubting Jesus as the Messiah. It's absolutely amazing. Remember, here is the man who had seen with his own two eyes the Spirit of God descending in the form of a dove and landing upon Jesus. And at that precise moment, this is the man who heard with his own two ears God the Father speaking from heaven and identifying Jesus as his beloved Son. And this is the man who pointed his finger at Jesus and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And yet in our text, we're told that this same John is now doubting. 
He's having second thoughts about Jesus. He's saying, are you really the one or should we look for somebody else? Unlike many Christian biographies, the Bible doesn't hesitate to highlight the weakness and faults even of great leaders. And I believe that the Bible does this because it's, right, it's written to people like you and me who also are people of like infirmity. We struggle with some of the same things that even men like John the Baptist struggled with. And so God is trying to give us a point of reference, reference with which you and I can identify. But the gospel writers do not merely call our attention to John's doubts. They also highlight two factors that occasion John's doubts. Okay, and this is important for us to get. It's not quite as evident in Luke's gospel unless you read earlier in Luke chapter 3 where we read there that Jesus, or rather that John was imprisoned. Um, if you were reading Matthew's account in Matthew chapter 11, Matthew explicitly says that it was while John was in prison that the disciples came to him and reported what Jesus was doing. All right? And so the first thing we see is the depressing nature of John's circumstances. According to uh, the Jewish historian Josephus, John was imprisoned in a place called Machairus, which was about five miles east of the Dead Sea. It was a hot, arid dungeon. Uh, certainly not like modern-day prisons where you know, there's air conditioning and at least good food. And commentators believe that by this time, John had been in prison for at least one entire year. Needless to say, John wasn't enjoying the best of circumstances. In fact, it's hard to think of worse circumstances than to be locked up in a dungeon. C.H. Spurgeon remarks, dark thoughts may come to the bravest of souls when pent up in a narrow prison cell. Maybe this is why John Bunyan, in his famous allegory, The Pilgrim's Progress, when he wants to sort of illustrate the place of doubting, he uses the picture of a, of a dungeon. Remember, doubting castle and being locked up there, Christian, in that dungeon. Well, that's because Spurge, or, uh, Bunyan rather was familiar with it firsthand. Remember, he spent 12 years in prison, and he knew that that those kinds of circumstances could give rise to doubts. So there were these depressing circumstances that were giving rise to John's doubts, but there was another factor that occasioned John's doubts, and that was the apparent deficiency of Jesus' ministry. In verse 18, we're told that John's doubts came about when he heard about Jesus' ministry. Having heard about what Jesus was doing throughout the countryside, while John is in prison, did not help John become more convinced that Jesus was the right one, but it actually caused him to doubt whether Jesus was the right one. And so he sends his disciples on this fact-finding mission. And that leads us to ask the question, what was it about Jesus' ministry that seemed so deficient to John? Well, I would suggest to you, it doesn't state this uh, explicitly in Luke's gospel here, but I would suggest 
that the reason why John was questioning Jesus' ministry is because his ministry lacked that element of judgment that John had come to expect in the Messiah. To highlight this, let me have you turn back in Luke's Gospel to chapter 3. Uh, because here in chapter 3, we see that John, and, and really this was common among the Jews of this day, John expected the Messiah to come not merely in salvation, but also in judgment. And in John chapter 3, as he's interacting with religious leaders of his day, he says to them, I baptize you, verse 16, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His, notice what he says, verse 17, his winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. All right, so John, just like many of the Old Testament prophets, viewed the coming of the Messiah as one event in which the Messiah would come to forgive his people of their sins, but also he would come in judgment upon their enemies. And so when John heard about Jesus' ministry, he detected a missing element. There was something that wasn't there, that should have been there, at least in John's mind. And so he thought to himself, where is this son of David who's going to make his enemies his footstool? Where is this mighty Messiah who's going to deliver his people from the oppression of ungodly people? After all, here is John, the Lord's servant, rotting in prison. And Jesus doesn't seem to be doing anything about it. Now, I want us to pause here and ask ourselves, can we not identify with John? Haven't there been times where we have wondered why it is that God has brought a particular trial into our life? And more than that, we begin to wonder, why isn't he doing anything about it? I have this, this, this chronic illness, and I've prayed that God would remove this thorn from my flesh, but he doesn't seem to be answering prayer. I'm still struggling with these depressing circumstances. God isn't doing what I expect him to do. And as a result, we begin to have struggles about Jesus and the gospel. Well, if John the Baptist struggled with such doubts, it's very possible that you and I, if we haven't done so yet, may do so in the future. Maybe when we get the news that we have cancer. Or perhaps uh, it may be because of an interpersonal difficulty we have with somebody in the church that can't seem to be resolved. Or maybe it's the, the death of a child. Who knows what difficult circumstance God may bring into our way. But when that happens, we can be tempted to have doubts about God. As Matthew Henry points out, the remaining unbelief of good men may sometimes, in an hour of temptation, strike at the root and call into question the most fundamental truths which were thought to be well settled. But when we find ourselves in such a state, we may even question whether God loves us. When such happens, dear child of God, remember John the Baptist. 
If John the Baptist could be a genuine believer, highly favored among God, in fact, as you go on and read in the passage here, Jesus goes on to say there was none greater than John, John among those born of women. He was a great godly man, and yet he struggled with doubts. But what's really encouraging for us this morning is not so much the fact that John struggled with doubts. I mean, certainly that's a point of reference for us. What's more encouraging, though, is the way in which Jesus deals with John's doubts. And that's what I want to turn our attention towards right now. We've looked at a genuine believer struggling with doubts, but now I want you to note verses 21 through 23, a gentle Savior dealing with doubts. And note with me that Jesus responds to John's doubt in three ways. First of all, he gives John's disciples a first-hand demonstration of his ministry. And this is implied in verse 22 when Jesus says to John's disciples, Go and tell John what you've seen and heard. All right, so the first thing Jesus does in response to John's question was to preach the gospel in the presence of John's disciples and to go about healing people of their diseases. So John had heard about that, but now he's going to have firsthand witnesses testify, yes, this is what Jesus is actually doing. The second thing Jesus does is he gives John an Old Testament description of his ministry in verse 22. There he draws from at least two messianic passages in the Old Testament to describe his ministry, where he says, the blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, deaf hear, dead are raised up, the poor have the good news preached to them. And if you have a cross-reference Bible, you'll probably note passages or the language here is being drawn from passages like Isaiah 35, 4 through 6, and Isaiah 61, 1 through 3. Both of those passages, in their original context, are describing the coming Messiah. And so by applying this Old Testament language to Jesus' own ministry, he's answering John's question. In essence, he's saying, yes, John, I am the one. I'm the one that was prophesied by the prophets. I am the coming Messiah. But then thirdly, Jesus gives John a gentle warning not to stumble over him. Look at verse 23. He says, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Now, the word translated offended in the original literally means to be scandalized. And that word in the New Testament can refer to someone who is scandalized in the sense of being caused to fall away into sin, but it can also be used to refer to someone who's caused to fall into unbelief. And it's the second usage that I think Jesus has in mind here. God's blessing, he says, is going to rest upon the person who does not fall away in unbelief because of me. So what is he doing here? Well, first Jesus is giving John, I believe, a gentle warning. He's not trying to frighten John or terrify John or make John doubt his salvation. He doesn't say, cursed be that rascal who falls into unbelief because of me. Rather, he's trying to encourage John. He's saying, John, don't give up. 
John, persevere in faith. John, you're going to be blessed by God if you persevere in trusting in me. I remember a couple of years ago, I was reading a, a Christianity Today magazine, and I came across an, an advertisement in the magazine um, that basically was about a book that argued that Christian believers will suffer for their sins for a thousand years in the millennium, okay? That during that time, whatever sins weren't covered by the blood of Christ are going to be punished and, 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 and there's going to be judgment meted upon us for a thousand years as a kind of a Protestant purgatory. And, and the name of the book was called The Rod, all right? And it had uh, a picture, as it were, of the Messiah's hand holding a large stick, getting ready to smite. Dear friends, thankfully, that's not the kind of savior we have. The prophets describe him as a gentle Savior, as one who's not going to quench the smoking flax, as one who's not going to break the bruised reed. And so Jesus here is not threatening to beat John, to forsake John, but he's trying to encourage John. He's trying to give him a sort of a gentle admonition. But there's something else, I think, that we can draw from Jesus' words. Listen to this carefully. Jesus' warning actually implies that there's something about his earthly ministry that may tempt his believers to fall away from him. You see, it wasn't so much what John was hearing about Jesus' ministry that bothered him. It was more what he was not hearing that bothered him. There was something that seemed too weak about Jesus that bothered John. And I often think to myself, it was a mercy of God that John was not still alive when Jesus was crucified, right? I mean, what would John think then? Oh boy, I really picked the wrong Messiah. But folks, think about it. This is the same thing that the Apostle Paul says caused the Jews to stumble. Remember that? In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, he says, the Jews ask for signs, the Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified to the Jews, what? It's a stumbling block because he is too weak. All right? Messiah on a cross, that doesn't fit their expectations of what the Messiah should be like. And so when Jesus declares... Blessed is the one who's not offended because of me. He is conceding that there's dimensions of his earthly ministry that may tempt us to doubt him. But then he encourages John, and he encourages us not to give in to these temptations. John, you're going to be happy in the end if you continue believing in me. So that's how Jesus deals with John's doubts. But now in closing this morning, let me try to draw out two practical applications for us today. All right, what lessons can we draw from this portion of Scripture? And the first thing I want to highlight, and this is so important, so critical, and even you young people that are here this morning, if there's something you want to write down and remember, it's this. We must accept Jesus as he presents himself to us in the Scripture 
And we must not demand that Jesus conform to our expectations of what we think he should be like. All right? That's so, so critical. Remember, John the Baptist expected the Messiah not only to deliver people from their sins, but he also expected Jesus to rescue him from his trials. All right? He wanted a Savior who would not only deliver from inward guilt, but he wanted a Savior who would liberate him from the world around him. Notice Jesus doesn't just stop what he's doing and say, well, I guess I better conform to John's expectations. I guess I better uh, change my agenda the way I'm doing ministry here because John wants me to do ministry in a certain way. I'm disappointing him, so I better do what John wants. That's not what Jesus does. Basically, Jesus just goes on doing the very works that he had been doing, the very works that had given John doubts. Jesus just keeps on doing them, right with John's disciples in his presence. And he basically tells John, look, as your disciples have borne witness, I'm doing the very works of mercy that were prophesied of the Messiah in the Old Testament. I'm not coming in judgment at this time, John. I can't tell you when I'm going to do that because that's classified information. However, John, you're going to be happy if you don't fall away because of me. And he doesn't even give that message to John directly, does he? He doesn't travel on to over to the prison and say, John, I'm going to deliver this personally to you, but he actually tells it to John's disciples, and they in turn have to give it to John. And I think you and I, again, can I sort of identify with John because there's many times when we would like Jesus to do things our way, right, rather than the way he often chooses to do it. There's times when we want him to rescue us out of our unpleasant circumstances, to remove that thorn in the flesh, or if he decides not to do it, then at least we want him to pay us a personal visit, right? Haven't you ever been that way? I've been that way. Or I've even thought to myself, Lord, if you're not going to come see me personally, just send an angel or, or give me a dream or vision or something, Lord. Well, Jesus doesn't conform to our expectations. He sends us back to the Bible, just like he sent John back to the prophet Isaiah, and he says, believe it, John. Believe it. It's true. And we say to ourselves, well, if only we... We, if only he could tell us when he's coming back. Is it going to be 2025? Then I'll persevere in this trial. And again, you know, the disciples wanted him to do that too. Remember that? After his resurrection, and they say, Lord, um, when are you going to establish the kingdom? And what did he say? He says to them, it's not for you to know the times and the epochs which the Father has fixed in his authority. Go preach the gospel. All right? We're not conforming to your expectations. You've got to conform your expectations to our plan. And that's what he says to us. It's not for us to know. Jesus doesn't have to give us a reason for everything he does or an explanation for his mod modus operandi, his way of operating. We've got to let him be God, and we've got to take our place as his submissive disciples. And he says to us, you will be happy if you don't fall away in unbelief from me. And I say to you, if you're here uh, this morning, maybe you're not a believer yet, right? Maybe as one of the reasons why you've not come to Christ in faith is that he hasn't met up 
to your expectations. Well, can I just say, dear friend, that you're going to be waiting a long time for him to do that. The very fact that he is God means that you've got to bring your expectations in line with him. He's not going to submit himself to you and do whatever you want. He's going to say, this is who I am. This is what I do. You need to believe that because I'm God and you're not. And I would just encourage you to consider the faith of the thief on the cross. Many of you know that story, two thieves crucified next to Christ. One of them began to reflect upon his sin and realize that he really deserved to be punished and that Jesus didn't deserve to be punished and that Jesus was innocent. And then all of a sudden he looks at Jesus and he says, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. That was an amazing, amazing act of faith. I mean, he had heard Jesus claiming to be the Messiah. He knew that's why the Jews were crucifying him. But here is this man in weakness dying on a cross, and that thief, by faith, doesn't stumble. He doesn't say, oh boy, that's not a, that's not a viable Messiah because he's dying. No, he says, you know what, that is the Messiah. I don't understand why he's dying, but I believe in him. And I'm going to conform my expectations of what a Messiah would be. I'm going to conform it to him. And I'm going to trust in him. And remember what Jesus says to him. Today you're going to be happy. Today you're going to be happy because you did not become offended. You didn't fall away because of me. And so it is, brothers and sisters, we have to bring our expectations of what Jesus should be like in line with the Scripture. But there's a second thing I want to underscore by way of application. We may have doubts about Jesus and his ministry, but we must not entertain those doubts. The word entertain means to extend hospitality towards or to hold something in mind. It's one thing to struggle with doubts from time to time. It's another thing when you and I give doubts a place of lodging within our hearts. When we do this, our doubts can subtly change into skeptical unbelief. Now today, society tends to praise skepticism, doesn't it? In fact, a few years ago, there was sort of a movement within the evangelical church uh, that sometimes went by the description, the emerging church or the emergent church. And one of the sort of hallmark characteristics about that particular movement was the idea that you would encourage people being skeptical, having doubts, doubts about the Bible, doubts about God's existence, doubts about Jesus, right? I remember reading in Christianity Today the, uh, the testimony of one of these emergent Christians, and she was saying this. She says, I grew up thinking that we figured out the Bible, that we knew what it means. Now I have no idea what most of it means. And yet I feel like life is big again. Life used to be black and white, but now it's in color. Does the Lord Jesus praise that kind of skepticism? I don't think so. I don't think Jesus in our text is commending John for his open-mindedness. Blessed are you, John, for questioning whether I'm the Messiah or not. He doesn't do that. He gives him a gentle warning. John, you're going to be happy if you... Stop that, okay? Don't entertain those doubts, John. Get them out of your heart, John. 
Fill your heart with these Old Testament passages about the Messiah, John. Meditate upon God's word, John, and then you're going to be happy because you don't fall away from me. And that's what you and I must do, brothers and sisters. We must, uh, when we find ourselves doubting like John, we must fall on our knees and say like that one uh, was it a father in the, in, in the New Testament where he says, uh, Lord, Jesus says, do you believe? He says, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. And that's what we got to do. We need to go back to the scripture as Jesus took John, read of the works of Christ. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the, by the word of God. And oftentimes I found when I've counseled people that are struggling with doubts, often, not always, but oftentimes, I find out that they're not reading their Bibles. Instead of entertaining Scripture in their hearts, they're entertaining the doubts. They're, they're giving place to those doubts. They're showing hospitality to those doubts. But, friends, if we would show hospitality to Scripture in our hearts, if we would study it, if we would read it, if we would meditate upon it, then I believe we'll experience the blessing that Jesus Christ here describes. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Blessed, he says, is he who's not offended because of Jesus. I know it's February. New Year's has already passed. But it's not too late for you and me to make a resolution to show hospitality to God's word to meditate on it, to study it, and to commit ourselves to commit ourselves to the Messiah as he's presented in his word, not as we might fancy him to be. So this morning, I just want you to think about that for a moment. Think about, are you doubting because Jesus isn't living up to your expectations? And if that's the case, pray, Lord, Help me to read your word, study what Jesus is like in the scriptures, and then conform my expectations to the Bible. If you do that, I think you'll begin to see the doubts lifted, the faith strengthened, and your hope renewed. Let's pray. Dear God and Father in heaven, we thank you for your patience with us. We confess that sometimes we're fickle. We're so easily wavered from our commitment to Christ. Because oftentimes, Lord, we, we have certain expectations of the way in which we'd like you to work in our lives. And when you don't meet up to those expectations, we're unhappy. And we begin to question you. And we, we become impatient with you. And we ask you that you'd even forgive us for that this morning. And that you would, through your word, grant us faith. We're, we're thankful, Lord, that you're so patient with your disciples. We're, we're so grateful that you don't write off one of your children when they struggle concerning you. But we do pray, Lord, that we would not remain in that state of struggling. That we would study your word, read your word, that we would count the scripture as more important than our daily food. And that you would use your word to strengthen us, to comfort us, to produce within us that kind of faith which believes that God is 
and that God is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. And if there's anybody here this morning who's not yet come to Christ, we pray that you would give that person today the gift of faith, to trust in Jesus, just as that thief on the cross did, that though he appears to be weak, he's not really weak. He's mighty, and he's overcome death by his death and resurrection on the cross. Oh, Father, do this work, we pray, for your glory and our good. Amen.